Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the executive editor-in-chief critic, joined as always by Ann Thompson, our editor-at-large. And Ann, it's been a busy awards week from a lot of different angles, starting with the Gotham Awards on Monday, the NBRs, and the Film Critics Circle Awards, which as chair of that group, I have some things to say about it. But what do you make? There's been so many different twists and turns in the last couple of days i'm not even sure which award season we're in right now well we're in the new york award season is what it really is i was just thinking about that because the gothams are such um a new york institution you know it represents a very small group of people very idiosyncratic um even more than the indie spirits which seems big and mainstream by comparison and and the gothams really have no impact on anything except to start the ball rolling in terms of people getting awareness of some really, really good movies that need to be seen in their screener piles. So the rider from Sony pictures classics, or that's a big boost. I mean, um, that was a surprise to a lot of people. I, I well, given that it was indie spirit nominee last yeah. year, uh, which is the first time that's ever happened. Um, I, I still, I love the rider and I think it's an extraordinary movie. And there's some, there's a group of people who are sort of say, Hey, let's get it a cinematography nomination which, you know, these are long shot possibilities that it would get into the best picture race or something well, like that. Well, it's funny because I saw Michael Barker from Sony Classics, you know, parading around the Gothams as soon as it was over. Because, you know, it's a big dinner at, at Cipriani's saying, you know, mark my words, it's going to be in the top 10 for best picture. But the thing is, what's funny about it is, you know, I was on the nominating committee for those films. Of all the ones that were in there, that was the one where it kind of felt like, well, it's great we can acknowledge this movie. You don't think you kind of naturally assume it'll be something like The Favorite because The Favorite just feels like a Gotham kind of movie at this time of year. I think but then, then, from their point of view, they think of The Favorite as a big budget, uh, fa- you know, front runner. And by the way, clearly the New York film critics do too. Well, that's an interesting question. So we gave a bunch of prizes to Roma for best film, for best cinematography, and for best director, two of which go to Quaron uh, alone. And uh, and the favorite got shut out. You know uh, that I'm a big fan of both this film and this filmmaker and uh, would have loved to see it win some prizes. And I don't think if you look at some of the 46 members in this group that there are a lot of people who don't like the favorite. I think we're looking at a year where there's some tough places. I think this is true across the board. I think The Favorite is one of those movies that is loved by many and disliked by just as many. And so it will have more than enough passionate supporters to get where it needs to go in, in a lot of the awards voting. For example, if we get to SAG and it doesn't get nominated by, you know, Ooh. For, for Olivia Coleman, and I'm a little worried, though, because I figured the New York film critics were going to go for Olivia Coleman and give her that first boost that she needed, and they didn't do it. Well, we can't reveal vote tallies as part of the rules, but again, it's I, I would not read too much into it in the sense that, you know, it's pretty clear that there are a lot of people, a lot of critics who like the favorite. I would be shocked if, you know, we're going to see a whole cascading list of critics groups voting on various things i'd be shocked if the favorite doesn't get some prizes from well, other critics. Film critics can can go for it if if they want to that's vote occurs on on sunday and and they can sometimes be more mainstream uh frankly than than the new york film critics which more prestigious for whatever yeah. reason yeah yeah well, and when we go first and and i think there is also a tendency for people to want to champion 
certain kinds of films. So there, there's that element as well. But it's an open question that we'll have to wait and see. And, uh, and then there's some other interesting things going on. So the MBRs, they always come out before us. And what I always find amusing about the MBR is it, ha- it always happens after New York Film Critics Circle. And it's like one of the last things that a lot of the town have to do in award season before the ballots close. And uh, I don't know. I just, what what value does the NBR have? Because a lot of people don't even understand what it is. It's not a representative group. It doesn't overlap with anything. It, it, it doesn't have any real influence except uh, that it, it starts to show people where where the screener piles are going again. But that was, so this went to Green Book. Well, which- they are more mainstream than, than the Gothams. And they tend to go, as they always have, with high-minded, social-minded uh, kind of, kinds of movies that are enlightening. And, and that Green Book is, is inside that, that box as far as they're concerned. But the question on that one is, I mean, we've we've talked about this movie recently and how its awards prospects are kind of unclear because it didn't play very it, well with the Academy. But it didn't do well commercially. And, and my it understanding of it and is on uh, the second week, they got a big boost from advertising from the studio. So it did fine on its second week. It didn't collapse. It's a slow build. It wasn't the it wasn't a hit right out of the gate. No. It, it, you would have thought a movie like this would have been the it's perfect a sort of movie. mouth movie. It's and it's a problem movie to market. It does. It's difficult to take those marketing materials and make them look uh, and, and get across what the movie is. It, it's it's hard. Well, and what I'm wondering with this one is how much will the narrative around the the racial dynamics of the film and whether or not they're problematic continue to develop because you know we ran a piece from Tambay Obinson there were some others out there really taking the movie to task for having what some people perceive as a very antiquated black character stereotype in the film and I mean this this wasn't my reaction to it wasn't but me I, either but I did the argument I mean the black community and I understand it and I, I respect it at the same time that I'm recognizing that the lion's share of the voters in all the groups we're looking at SAG Academy, uh, different guilds, the 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 makeup of the industry itself is largely white, and and so this may fall into the category of something like Driving Miss Daisy or, um, uh, or Crash or or In the Heat of the Night. You know, one of those movies that James Baldwin described in that great uh, documentary, I Am Not Your Negro, as the kind of movies that make white people feel good about themselves. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I it's think that, it's that, this hits that nail square on the head. Yeah, and that's why it seems hard to think of it as an Oscar movie because it's like, well, that was the crash moment, but have we moved beyond that Not, kind of thing? It hasn't necessarily moved, but you're, I mean, it's moved a little. That we we look at the numbers every year. They add enormous numbers of people of color, younger people, uh, people from overseas, and so on. But it it isn't enough to move the needle far enough so that so that there the if the entire if every let me put I'm this is I if every single black person in the academy or every single person that went along with this kind of thinking was affected to not vote for it, there would be plenty of other people who love it. Do you see what I mean? 
Yeah, but it gets a pretty crowded year too. So that it is tarnish it. It could have stickiness over time. I'm going to watch all these other groups very carefully. The N, the national, the uh, the NBR gave Best Actor to Viggo Mortensen too. Yeah. So on a somewhat related note, going back to New York Film Critics Circle, we gave awards to two Reginas, one of whom I would say does seem to have some serious awards prospects. That's Regina King in Beale Street. She's going to be the one to win. I mean, there's no there to beat. You can't. She is so locked in now. Which is great. I mean, she's really, I think she's great in this movie. I, when I read the yeah, book, I was imagining this she's character. She's in this movie. And she's well-liked, and, and it just feels it feels like that's what's going to happen. Um, I used to think it was Mahershala Ali in supporting. We see, we'll see how that goes, too. For Green Book. But, but I, it is notable that, you know, Barry Jenkins directed Mahershala Ali to a supporting actor Oscar. In this case, he may have directed another person. Right. He was supporting actress Oscar, and you know it, it speaks to a filmmaker who is very attuned to how every role kind of counts. Maybe the movie as a whole is is too small or or understated for it to be a big so one. We shall see. I I have to say I saw it a second time and I couldn't have been more impressed again. Yeah, I saw it a second time too, and it's just it's it really does. It's very well, satisfying. It's so time. beautifully done. It's a very delicate flower. And it's just uh, impeccably uh, put together. Um, but but so those two, but Regina Hall got Best Actress. And Let me talk about that one. That's the <laughs> that first was... time in the history of your group in 83 years that you've given that award to a black actress. And, and I don't know what took so friggin' long, but I'm, I'm glad we got that out of the way. And, and hopefully it will not be anywhere near the last time. But um, I, also worth pointing out, second member of the girls' trip entourage to win in a row after <laughs> Tiffany Haddish was the surprise winner for supporting actress last year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah but, but at Regina Hall in support the girls is amazing. So, you know, Bujowski is, is one of those kind of Altman type of filmmakers where the story is less about big events and more about the texture moment to moment kind of a thing. Then he really built this fascinating kind of day in the life story around this woman managing this kind of crappy uh, bar in, in Texas. And um, it's just, you know, this is an actress who I think, has been taken for granted for too long. So, you know, is Magnolia gonna she's one she's wonderful. She's wonderful in in um the hate you give as well. Um, right. Where she, she plays more of a supporting part. role. Yeah. But I mean maybe that'll help uh, for her. I, I don't think she has enough of a prominent role in Hate You Give for this. No, 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 no. That's not I don't feel I don't really feel the awards prospects building for the Hate You Give. I don't know why exactly. Maybe it's the YA aspect of it. It's done very well at the box office. Fox handled it perfectly. But Yeah, I mean people appreciate that movie. It's it's I um, wanted to see Nick I wanted to see Russell Hornsby. Did you see? I was going to say Nick Hornsby, Russell Hornsby, get into uh, supporting actor, but we we shall. That would be the kind of thing that that the critics could have helped. You know, that's what they can do. They can put someone on the map so that people will check it out. Well, with Regina Hall, it's kind of cool because this is, Magnolia put this out. Um, you know, it was well reviewed, but it's again, it's just not a movie that that through word of mouth would become a phenomenon because it is very understated. But I think when people take a chance on it, they'll be richly rewarded. And so that is what the accomplishment They're is. They're not here. sending out screeners, though. They're sending out links. links. It's, it's expensive. 
This stuff is expensive. IFC is the same deal. You know, it's it's just those fancy for your consideration things. I mean, I've gotten so many DVDs from Netflix. I have everybody has a Netflix account and they send out so much they don't stuff. They miss a trick and they have the money to spend and they're spending it. Um, yeah. You know, the question for Roma is, is you know, this was a good thing for the New York film critics to back Roma. Oh, they were threatening it. You could feel it. They were worried. It needs the help. Yeah. Um, it does. Because I now realize as I talk to more people that even people that I consider to be erudite, sophisticated film lovers don't necessarily respond to Roma because it's not a conventional narrative. It doesn't have a soundtrack. It's about a, a woman who's a nanny and, and maybe some people don't relate to her. I'm, I'm just stating it as it is. I think those people are wrong. films of all time, but you know, whatever. It's, I mean, the thing about this is like, I don't know. I, I hear people saying that I respect the perspective of somebody who says they don't get to know the character in the film enough. They want but I'm thinking conventional writing is what they want. They want more conventional exposition, yeah. dialogue, and narrative and plotting, which is not what Quaron is after. He's after him in his his memories. Yeah, it, it's like even if I didn't know that it was related to his own personal memories, I think what what's interesting about the movie and what what's so successful about it is that. It's so unpredictable. And the first time I watched it, I had so I had no idea where this was gonna go. And it's not like it goes to some, you know, jarring twist, but it, it brings you into a world and you come out of it thinking about it more and more and more to the extent that you you have to at least accept that there is a tremendous level of narrative skill and display. They can only come from somebody who understands this medium as well as this. I agree. I'm not going to disagree with you. Okay. So um, we were going to do our 10 best lists. Yeah. It's that time of year. So let's do that. Cause even, even though we haven't gone over every single thing that went on at all these groups, these movies, we're, we're going to be talking about the same movies anyway. So uh, it'll all get done. So yeah. we're going to count down. We're going to start with number 10 and, um, and then uh, move up to number one. I haven't read your list yet, which was posted on IndieWire today, but I, I purposely did not look at it. So uh, you have not influenced me unless you've reached me through all of these conversations. Yeah, I, ha- I do influence you, Anne, in ways you never are fully aware of. <laughs> not um, so why don't you start it off? What's your number 10? All right. So my number 10 is um, Blind Spotting. Hmm. And this is a movie that there were two Bay Area movies that opened this year. Um, one, you know, uh, one was uh, Sorry to Bother You. And this was the other. And this was by far um, my my preference. Um, it, it's it's about uh, the, the director, Carlos Lopez Estrada, did this amazing job with these two writer actors, Rafael Casal and David Diggs of Hamilton fame. Um, you know, David Diggs plays this guy who is on probation and there's a real ticking clock and they just execute this perfectly. It feels real, authentic, lived in, taught. It, you know, you get a sense of the time, the place, the interaction between the two leads is is really funny and good and 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 witty and unexpected. Um, and I love this movie. Okay, I won't get into it, but I, I though I have reservations about it. I, I respect blind spotting and I respect your decision to support it. I'm curious to see how it, you know, 
how that filmmaker continues to evolve and those writers, the, the two men, you know, have a lot of potential. My number 10, a very different kind of movie experience. It is free solo. Um, and yes, it is okay to put documentaries in your top 10 list, people. That They are just as much cinematic experiences when done well as other things. And that's what's so great about free solo is the, the filmmaking accomplishment to follow this guy, Alex Honnold, as he climbs a 3,000-foot rock with no ropes is just so extraordinary. And they contextualize it with this almost like psychological profile of you know who, who he is. And it feels like there is a lot of you know allegorical power to that, you know, the kind of determination he brings to it, but also just what they did with cameras to capture this climbing. It's never been done quite like this in film before. I've seen the movie a few times. It's just it's some of the best suspense I've seen on screen all year. And uh, people should see it. It's it, there's a, so, so much to get out of this movie, and that's my number. So 10. should I? I love that movie, as you know. Um, I think it's extraordinary. Uh, it's also intensely um, visceral to nerve wracking. Sit through it is 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 tough because uh, you you know you know that this guy could plunge to his death, even if you know that he doesn't. You still know that he could, and yep. it's nerve wracking. Yep. You're right. I have a lot of other great documentaries that I was trying to figure out which ones to go for this year. So the I finally decided that Crime and Punishment is the one that I want to reward. Um, it's a uh, an amazing New York uh, NYPD expose by uh, director Stephen Mang that follows this group of incredible characters who are involved in a landmark class action lawsuit over illegal police policing quotas. And it took four years and they, they go through all these different struggles because you've got these people working inside the LAP, the LA, listen to me, NYPD, who are right next to people that are, they're basically part of the probe. And they have to somehow, they're all put in terrible jobs. They're all put really frozen out in, in, a, in a, it's a great movie. I highly recommend it. I still haven't seen it, but it's definitely one of those blind spots I'll try to fill before the end of the year. So what's uh, what's your number nine? I love If Beale Street Could Talk, um, Barry Jenkins' delicate balancing act between past and present. Uh, he gives us a true love story uh, between two beautiful young lovers. It's sincere. It's real. And he gives us their loving parents um, and that uh, involves, of course, the amazing New York Film Critics Prize-winning performance from Regina King. Uh, it also involves um, amazing. Again, this is the man who shot Moonlight, James Laxton, cinematography, and the way that he uses the photography and the music from Nicholas Bertel to work back and forth between past and present is extraordinarily delicate and beautifully done. Yeah, believe it or not, my number nine is also if Beale Street could talk. So we do see perfectly eye to eye. And I think it's a perfect number nine kind of a movie, which isn't a knock on the film. It's more like if you make it, you rank it too highly, you overhype what's an incredibly uh, involving, understated drama. But it's, it's just a movie that is so satisfying on a lot of different levels. And when I saw it for the second time at this big Apollo screen that they did for New York Film Festival, I, I really, you know, it was, it was great to see how well it played to the crowd. 
and that it's it's not just a depressing drama about black life in America. It doesn't wallow in that kind of a downbeat emotion, even though it is very tragic in certain parts. It's also quite funny. I mean, there's a great apartment battle between two right. families. And it, and it plays really well. It's all these great put downs. He's amazing. Yeah. And I, I was th when I saw it a second time, I was really struck by that scene because he ha it has to build, it has to modulate, it has to go back and forth between funny and really sincere. And he really just knows exactly what he's doing. And the actors do too. I mean, someone like um, Regina King is great, but so is everybody else. You know, Coleman um, is great too. Yeah, it's a, it's a very confident piece of filmmaking. So that brings us to number eight. What's your number eight? First Reformed, Paul Schrader. I, I suspect that this movie is also even perhaps higher on, on your last list. At the behest of Pavel Pavlikovsky, uh, Schrader returned to the spiritual subjects that have haunted him since he was a young seminarian. Um, Ethan Hawke, again, he won Gotham's, he won the New York Film Critics uh, as this extraordinarily tortured priest. Um, and then the other thing that Schrader did was to, you know, he's been doing a lot of experimentation in recent years, um, always willing to try new things. But here he goes back to a very elegant, austere um, palette, you know, more more like Brisson, you know, that kind of movie. And it really paid off. Yeah, he may or may not make an appearance uh, with that movie further down on my list. But my number eight is Madeline's Madeline, uh, a great discovery this year out of Sundance. And I say that even though I was very familiar with this filmmaker, Josephine Decker, going back to her first film, Butter on the Latch, which I saw sort of out of nowhere when it premiered at the Maryland Film Festival a couple years back. But it was just a totally outrageous, very bizarre kind of a midnight movie experience in the sense that a very experimental approach to putting you inside somebody's very kind of unstable, subjective way of seeing the world. And Madeline's Madeline is a continuity of that, but it's also an evolution for this very daring filmmaker with this extraordinary central performance by Helena Howard as a teenager who's in this New York acting workshop and starts to kind of blur the distinction between what's really happening and the character she's playing. And it's got this kind of musical finale that's very open-ended and beautiful and, and, and absorbing and it's just completely original unclassifiable piece of filmmaking that absolutely needs to be discovered and from a filmmaker who is very clearly just getting started so that is my number eight i hope people see it i have to catch up with that i admit um number seven for me is first man and i know that this is a movie that uh has inspired a lot of reactions pro and con, but I am definitely in the pro column. Damien Chazelle strikes again, takes chances with a mix of film styles from the bone rattling aerial feats to the domestic documentary like scenes in Houston to the IMAX scale moonwalk, uh, you know, centered uh, by this, anchored by this performance, this extraordinary performance by, by Ryan Gosling, which, you know, you could say, okay, laconic, uh, the guy doesn't talk, he doesn't demote. That makes it more difficult. That's why I think it's a great performance. Well, at the very least, people should try to go see that movie in IMAX and experience the moon landing because the craftsmanship there is, is really next level. It does not disappoint. But my number seven is a very different kind of transportive experience. It's uh, a movie that takes you into uh, a world and a way of 
seeing society that uh, is often underrepresented and that's burning from Lee Chang Dong, which is, you know, this is a guy who make, who takes his time making movies and it's always worth the wait. It's been seven or eight years since Poetry, which was also a movie that, you know, on paper is kind of hard to sell to people, but then you sit down and you, you go through the experience and you realize just how great he is at representing characters and situations that have profound reverberations that creep up on you. And Burning, which is based on this more comedy short story, is just su such a wildly unpredictable way of exploring, you know, Asian identity and, uh, you know, specifically the Korean experience and a, and a kind of envy for the Western world, this guy who's sort of an introvert idolizing or, or being attracted to this one woman who's kind of sort of dating this very confident Korean-American guy played by Stephen Young in his best role to date. And it, you're, you're right, in, in, in the past you've compared it to Jules and Jim, but what's really interesting about it is that you don't know if this is truly a kind of a love triangle or if it's going to a darker place, but it's just constantly absorbing poetic in the way that it represents this experience and it keeps you talking. It's just so confidently done. I really. love burning. I love burning. And there is one shot, which I've mentioned before, that I'll never forget, of, of the woman dancing naked uh, against the sunset as the two men watch her. And, uh, you know, just unforgettable scene. Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, great cat movie. See it for the cat. <laughs> the, the cat, trust me, people sit, sit through that movie, they're like, is he going to show us the cat or not? The cat really delivers when you finally get it. <laughs> so um, my number six is Private Life, which I missed many times throughout the year and feel terrible about. Why well, did you uh, do that? It, it just, I didn't see it at Sundance because we had all these coverage plans and Sundance was just a pile up and then it just... It kept eluding me at other festivals as other things piled up. So I finally watched it at some point close to when it came out. Um, and I just, I, I was so, I found it so, I, I'd heard great stuff, but Were I just found it so sad. of her work before? You know, I thought Savages was great. Me too. Um, but, but what's really cool about this one is that Savages is, is a real downer of a movie, I think, across the board. And, and what I liked about Private Life was the way that it, it kind of has it both ways. I mean, yes, it is kind of a bummer movie about uh, a marriage at a certain point in life, going through a certain transition, trying to have a kid and dealing with getting older and all that stuff. But it all is also kind of life affirming the way that it, first of all, that it's very funny and, and uh, insightful throughout, but also with this younger character played by Kaylee Carter, I think there's a, there's a, an element of hope about the younger generation and a sense of continuity that allows it to be a, a warmer experience, even though it's also a, a like classic cynical New York movie. So yeah, just really richly satisfying all across the board with this one. I love that movie too, which is also in my second uh, tier. Um, I think she's one of the best writer directors we have. And I think it's uh, not just the writing, it's the directing. I think she did a beautiful job with New York City um, in, in this movie. So I hope people check it out on Netflix. My number six is uh, from another woman director, Deborah Granick, Leave No Trace, um, a fictionalized uh, true story uh, set in Oregon uh, uh, about this um, veteran uh, with PTS played by Ben Foster, uh, who uh, is raising his, his teenage daughter in the woods. And uh, for various reasons, they get caught and, and have to reenter uh, 
the real uh, world. And it's, it's a very dramatic, very controlled, extremely disciplined, um, incredibly emotional story that is well executed in every way by everyone and, and is the product of a lot of deep research by everyone uh, so that it rings very true. Um, And I uh, hope people have a chance to catch up with it. It's getting a lot of awards attention, but uh, it needs even more. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those, it's just, you have to kind of push to reintroduce it to people at this time of year in a way, but that's a challenge with a lot of films. My number five is a movie that uh, I think, caught a lot of people off guard because it didn't really have a track record, but it's been amazing to see how it's continued to surprise and astonish people and become a kind of cultural phenomenon, which is always great when it's something that when you first hear about it, seems like it'll, it'll just never find an audience. And that's sorry to bother you. Just like totally wild, very innovative capital, anti-capitalist satire from Boots Riley, whose work I was not familiar with prior to this movie, but when listened to his, Band the coup since then, and I think what's really cool about it is for like 20 years, this guy's been using kind of the hip hop medium of sorts, although he's changed styles several times over as a vessel for ideas about society and specifically working class struggles. And he's now found a similarly kooky approach as a filmmaker in this really funny, really strange movie that may be messy in parts, but is also kind of. Uh, it's just so original and and unique in its vision that it I, I think overcomes that messiness to have some really singular way of talking about the modern world. So it's a really exciting kind of discovery this year that if you haven't seen it yet, you definitely should check it out. Well, you're obviously not talking to me when you say that. I know you're not a fan. Uh, I, I, it isn't that I'm not a fan. I love the the screenplay. I, I love all the things that you think are great about it in terms of the writing. It's the, uh, I think it's a first time director, and and sometimes that's just a, a place I cannot go. You know, if somebody's clunky uh, and and amateurish about how they direct, that's just the way. I roll. So my number, uh, I'm going from a, to an entirely different studio level with a star is born <laughs> for my number five. Um, and I just think uh, that a star is born as big as the budget may be is actually more, I know this seems strange, but it is more of an independent film than most studio movies to the extent that the actor-director Bradley Cooper had complete control over it and put years of his life into, you know, making sure the screenplay was just so that it was that he had created this character of Norman of, of you know, not Norman Maine, Jackson Maine, um, that he had, uh, you know, figured out how to, you know, that Lady Gaga was the right person to play uh, the woman who he falls in love with and rises her up to fame. And it's also about the point of view of the concerts, the immersive quality of the cinematography by Maddie Libatique and the sound, the Adobe Atmos sound, and the way that they just made this movie immersive and very uh gritty and real and not and naturalistic and and i love it along with a lot of other people so my number four uh you knew it was going to surface eventually is first reformed first reform being a movie that 
I mean, I was, I've always been up for a new Paul Schrader movie. I hated the canyons, but I like dog eat dog more than a lot of folks. I think that he's always trying interesting things, but what's cool about first reformed is Schrader is the kind of guy who critics love to obsess over because he used to be a critic. There's like a philosophy behind his filmmaking and it's not always obvious in the movies that he's made, but in first performed, it really feels like the kind of ideas of this guy as an artist, the man in the room concept being inside somebody's headspace and how he relates to transcendental cinema over the decades, the that kind of aesthetic really comes to, to the foreground in the way that he represents uh, this priest who's kind of losing his mind over our broken world. And so it's very timely but it's also trying things and it pulls you in and it leaves you gasping at the end, like trying to figure out what just happened. And it's just so great to see that kind of confidence in filmmaking from a director like Schrader. So that is my number four. Applause, applause. Um, my number four is Black Panther. Uh, Ryan Coogler's extraordinary accomplishment um, uh, from the script level to the invention of an entire world that never had existed before on screen, which you know, you can do that well or you can do that badly. And they did an extraordinary job with Wakanda, the production design, the costume design, the cinematography um, by uh, Rachel Morrison, who was the first woman nominated for an Oscar last year and could be the second, uh, get a second one this time. Um, everything, you know, the character of T'Challa, uh, played by Chadwick Boseman, um, the the women who support him, who are so strong and so warrior-like, uh, he, he handles the James Bond aspects of this, the action aspects. There's so many different movies inside of Black Panther and Marvel let Kugler, I mean, they supported him and they uh, helped him to develop the material and they helped him uh, to, to find his way, but they let him bring in his own people and, and bring in people that had never worked for them before and uh, execute this extraordinary accomplishment, which is a worldwide blockbuster and should be uh, a major uh, Oscar nominee. Yeah, we'll see how that goes. Well, my number three, very different kind of movie. It's one that I wavered on whether or not I should actually put it in the number one slot because I loved it so much. I saw it a while ago, but I think it's just so important to remind people that this movie is friggin' hilarious and timely and worth checking out. And that is The Death of Stalin. Oh. Who, you know, did In the Loop, he did Veep. He's, he's so great at writing this zippy, satire of obnoxious political people into in an almost like slapstick framework and the idea of him taking that and transposing it onto into the soviet era with all of these awful leaders vying for the top spot after stalin randomly dies and steve buscemi as khrushchev being this guy who who is is just like constantly you know sticking his foot in his mouth doing these stupid things in his attempt to get in charge. It's just such a, an amazing work, especially in our particular moment when, you know, we're dealing with this administration that actually does seem like a bunch of, Bum you know, this, <laughs> dysfunctional goofballs. It's like you can, you can see it in, in the way, but it, and it, it just works. It's just so funny moment to moment. I'm listening to so you laugh, thinking about it. It's, it's a very, so very, very well-written, funny, well-directed and acted movie. I mean, it's high execution points on every single level. 
Um, my number three is Cold War um, from Pavel Pavlikovsky. I saw it back in Cannes. I look forward to seeing it again. Um, it is uh, a deeply personal movie for him, inspired by his parents who had some kind of dysfunctional romance uh, in and out, like the ones, um, the two uh the couple in this movie. Uh, the acting is extraordinary. The black and white cinematography, the evocation of place and country and time, the music in it is amazing. Um, and it's not a conventional romance that gives you the satisfaction of some kind of um, happy ever after, let's say. Um, and to the extent that it's bittersweet, um, that's part of why it's so great. All right, we're getting down to the final countdown here. So my number two is a movie we've talked about already this week, and that is Roma, which is Alfonso Cuarón's uh, best best movie, I think, since he took Mama Tambien. I mean, I like Gravity, obviously, and the other things he's done have been impressive, but I, it was nice to see him go back to Mexico and make this incredibly personal movie. The, the autobiographical element is interesting to talk about, but I don't think it's it's necessary to appreciate what this movie is, which is just such an incredible mastery over the possibilities of this medium. And uh, it's just a movie I keep thinking about and, it's, and, and it keeps, uh, keeps me uh, you know, engaged moment to moment in a way that few movies do these days by taking its time. And, and that's just, I think there's a lot that can be gleaned about how brilliantly paced this film is. I agree with everything that you said, except for one thing, which is that I do think that the film is designed from in front um, as a memory piece, and therefore the degree to which it goes back and recreates the 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 world that that Quaron himself lived in in painstaking detail, and the way that he checked back with um, uh, the woman that that Cleo is, is modeled on, who still lives, the, the real life Cleo, um, to check his memories and the way he relied on a kind of deja vu as he was filming to sort of confirm uh, how close he was getting to the truth as he remembered it. Yeah. Um, I think that's really important to, to the movie and, and significant. Now that said, Roma is my number one. So let's get rid of that. You know, I guess, I, guess I, I suspect that's not a surprise to anyone um, that that's my favorite movie of, of the year. And I just think it's head and shoulders above everything else. So my number two movie is the favorite and the favorite is Yorgos Lanthimos. And I suspect that you may have the same one. How did you figure it out? So you and I are again in closer agreement than we might think. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm glad that I had a few things on here that, that you, know, you weren't on the same page with. We all, we'll always have sorry to bother you to argue over, but the favorite, I mean, I think like when we started this podcast, I was like this guy telling you you should check out your I loved the lobster. But, I loved dog tooth. I just wasn't at the height of standing uh, for these the way you were. Yeah, well, it, it, you were you were bound to come around because this is a filmmaker who I think grows on people. Well, just maybe that this is his most accessible, satisfying, uh, and d deliriously visual. I mean, he's working with a much more different palette, and he's playing around in in a with a story, a, a historical, um, true story that that he doesn't have to create a crazy world. The world already 
he exists. He just makes it crazier. Um, and it, the, the, the pleasures of this movie are boundless. I'm not worried that the critics groups haven't gone for it. I think it's actually in great shape. Uh, I hope I'm right about that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the thing about the favorite that I think is, is so the movie plays, but it's also, it's like, it's so nasty, you know, and, and bitchy. And like, I was, I opened up like a random page of the screenplay and I'm just like, wow, you know, they're just, there's so much like cussing and people calling, calling each other names and, and, you know, throwing shade at each other. And then you get these like kind of wacky interstitial bits, like the really modern dancing and stuff like that. And the more you think about it, the, the, the more unconventional it is. I mean, it's not Barry Lyndon. And also for me, I find it supremely satisfying to watch Rachel Weiss, you know, wearing her manager outfits and, you know, talking down to the men and, you know, deriding them contemptuously or the scene where, where um, Emma Stone is in her um, marriage bed. She's just gotten married to this delicious hunk played by Joe Alwyn and she's got her back to him and she's jerking him off, you know, while she plots her survival strategy you know it's a great it's a great movie yeah. I, I i i heartily recommend that you see it not once but twice man bring your friends let them be surprised it's it's very satisfying so lanthimos for all the oscars done deal in any case this was fun you uh, and i had the same yeah. top two how about really- that don't let it get around too much. <laughs> All right. So then then we have the um I'm curious, what are your what are the eight movies that you left off and what is your favorite animated film of the year? So my favorite animated film of the year is uh, I mean I didn't see as many this year as I would have liked, but it's it's Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. I'm not I, I'm not on cloud nine like some people are with this movie, but I but I enjoyed it a lot because it's so outside the box it's visually very inspired it's it's got that jittery lego movie quality to it but it's also about worlds colliding it's a very clever way to explore the concept of a superhero through different interpretations of that hero but just visually it's like constantly erupting with different kinds of visual motifs and stuff in a way that that i'd I'd never quite experienced before and it's just really cool to very complicated. And I think Phil and Lord's fingerprints, they're the producers. I mean, Lord, Phil Lord and Tris Miller, yeah. Lord and Miller, they are all over it. Their fingerprints are all over it. And it's truly delicious. But just what I loved about it is that they not only did a lot of CG animation, but they allowed all of their animators to, quote unquote, paint or draw over that um, in a human hand way hand-drawn and and that i found fascinating that there were different levels of depth created that way that gives it um a, a more human touch it doesn't have it is pixelated up to the max to me perhaps sometimes in those later scenes you know mind-bogglingly so uh you do wear out a little bit with it but um at least i do but it it is um it has the human touch to it that i liked yeah yeah, so that's your that's your favorite animated film as well. My favorite is going to stick with Incredibles too, uh. because Brad Bird is an auteur. He is a writer. 
He is a director. He was in control of this. He waited all these years, 14, I believe, uh, between the first and the second. He waited until he was ready. And he uh, exceeded all of my hopes for this. It's extraordinary what he did with this movie. Um, and uh, uh, I think I think it's it stands uh, head and shoulders above everything else this year. Yeah, it was okay. <laughs> so, so what were the what were the eight films that you left off uh, that that are below your your top? Just name I, I them. will name the films very quickly. Paddington Two starts it off. That's on my second tier yeah, as well. Yeah, Vox Lux, Wild One, mm-hmm. We the Animals. Big fan of it since Sundance. I ended up catching up with that movie and um, appreciate its virtues at the same time that it's not for me. Well, that's uh, you're not alone on that front, but I continue to, to champion it. Can You Ever Forgive Me? Best role from Melissa McCarthy ever. Very well directed. Border, totally wild and fun. Uh, oh, I love that. that. that was so, I love both of those films, and too. That brings us to Support the Girls, which you've read about a bit today. Um, Mandy. Crazy <laughs> movie that's actually a sophisticated study of the grieving process, and also a really cool success story this year. But you know, I so many people I know who aren't movie people have discovered Mandy this year. Then no, I wouldn't expect you to be. So I just find some things to disagree with. I, and then my number eleven. <laughs> Checking. <laughs> have you seen Colette yet? No. 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 I haven't seen the wife. I need to watch the wife. Sorry. Where's Widows? I thought you were a big Widows uh, fan. Widows is number eleven. All That's right, my number eleven. So, so next week we've got Golden Globes, which means a whole other set of things to talk about. We will. The season keeps going. So enjoy the weekend, and I'll see you. Bye. Bye.